Welcome to the Expat Empire Podcast, the podcast where you can hear from expats around the world and learn how you can join them. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on the Expat Empire Podcast. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that we're offering a free consulting call to anyone interested in moving abroad. Whether you're thinking about retiring somewhere warm, starting an international career, or becoming a digital nomad, we're ready to help you think through the next steps in your journey. Send us a message at expatempire.com to schedule your call today. With that said, let's start the conversation. Hey, Travis. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Expat Empire podcast. Oh, you're welcome, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, it'll be good to hear a lot about your experiences, of course, traveling around the world and more recently, I guess, slowing down a little bit as far as your travels, perhaps, but I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about it. But I'd love it if you could tell us a bit about your background first. So where you're originally from, where around the world that you've been or lived so far, I'm sure it's a long list, so you can abbreviate it, yeah. and where you're based right now. That would be great. Awesome, man. Yeah, so... 37, I guess to give some context on like age and how long I've made it on this, on this world, on this journey. And I started in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I, I was actually born in Minneapolis. I don't remember it because we moved when I was three, but then I was raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So that's what I claim is like, you know, my home where, where I was brought up. That's why I'm still a diehard Green Bay Packers fan, all that stuff, you know, mm-hmm. but um, I basically, and then I basically, I worked in the nonprofit sector through my twenties. I was like a, you know, old school camp counselor and all I knew I was really good at was hanging out with kids. So I worked in the nonprofit sector, working with, you know, disadvantaged youth, running after school programs. I ran a group home in New Orleans for a couple of years called Boys Hope, Girls Hope. It's a really cool job. It's kind of like my first real job. And then I went back to grad school, actually in Milwaukee at Marquette. I got a fellowship to the Trinity Fellow Program, which is like a really cool grad school program, basically. And after those two years, I just kind of got it stuck in my head of like, whenever I ever made a decision like for my life and not for my resume. And that thought led me to book a one-way flight into South America and then fast forward nine years and here I am still just like out in the world. I haven't really lived in the States since mm-hmm. I was 28 and I've lived a lot of places since then. The memoir that I wrote that I'm sure we'll talk mm-hmm. about, I broke up into four, four continents. So I guess as a way to like kind of abridge the list of places I've been, mm-hmm. those four continents are South America, North America, where I lived in uh, like Alaska, Hawaii, this island called Utila, where I did my dive master off the coast of Honduras. Mm-hmm. So I lived sort of all those places for a little while each and then I lived in Australia, so that's continent three in the book. I did Australia for like a year and a half until I was forcibly removed from the country for breaking the terms of my visa. Also a good story in the book. If you, if you want to know more about that, we can, we can chat through that a little bit. It was a pretty hectic couple of days for me. And then also like a lot of Southeast Asia. So that's, that's the last continent in the memoir that I wrote. And then since then, I've also been you know like all over Europe. And Cape Town is one of the places I first went internationally that made me feel like the world is open to me. And I like made a lot of really close friends and connections there in South Africa. So I really love Cape Town, but yeah, I've been, been all over the map, man. And, and, you know, the more you travel, the more you find other places that, you know, people mm-hmm. talk about it that seem interesting and that make you want to go. So yeah, I don't, I don't think of my travels as being done by any means at, at this point, but since the pandemic, I've basically just been in Mexico. Mm-hmm. My partner is from, is from Mexico city. So we spent the first like 10 months of the pandemic in Mexico city. And then sort of started plotting and scheming how to get down to where we live now, which is Puerto Escondido on the Oaxacan coast. It's a magical little sort of like surf town, like bohemian sort of artsy neighborhood that I live in called La Punta that I really, really, really love. Um, it's just got like this really connected energy where, you know, I just showed up at this co-working space today to, to, to chat to you. And like I said, hi to like five people, you know, on the, on the two block walk over here because it's really like small little connected town. So I really love it here. And yeah, my girlfriend and I, I spent every dollar I have in the world on a piece of land in this neighborhood. So. 
yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying the staying put thing now. I, I tried the moving around <laughs> thing for like, for like nine years and now I'm going to try the staying put thing. And so, yeah, I, I took all my money out of the bank and put it on a little chunk of Oaxacan land and, and I'm pretty Amazing. happy about it. I'm, I'm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. So that's, that, that fast forwards us to today, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ton to dive into there. And I guess maybe the best place to start is a bit at the beginning. So just to get some clarity on your thought process. And as you said, that sort of question about doing something maybe for you, uh, as opposed to yeah. the resume. So how did that originate and, and how did it germinate, I guess, and, and ultimately lead to that one way trip? Oh, that's a great question, man. I mean, I, I try to talk, like think through this and write, write, write mm-hmm. it out a little bit in the book as well. But like, you know, it's basically like, I, I remember as a kid, my dad having like a national geographic magazine collection. Right. And I would like lay on a rickety old bench press in like the suburban basement, just like flipping through these pages. Like, what is it? You know, like, where are these people? And like, how can I meet like other people that are so different from me or whatever? I remember, yeah, like Papua New Guinea specifically, like always stuck in my head as a kid. And I was like, I want to go there. I still never made it. So hopefully I will at some <laughs> point, but you know, I just like had these like, you know, swirling images of what the rest of the world outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin might be like. And I was always just really curious. And then I did do my fair share of like trying to see as many of the 50 odd states as possible in my like twenties and whatever. And, you know, I went to the golf and did a lot of volunteering after hurricane Katrina. And I, you know, know, I I tried to see as much of the country basically, but then at some point, yeah, like during grad school, that was when I was 26 to 28. I I just really felt like I needed to go, you know, use my passport and like go, go see something beyond Canada. Basically. Mm -hmm. I think that was the only place I'd really been with my passport. And, and I'd done this trip to, to South Africa. So that sort of made me feel like, you know, I can have success if I go somewhere even like even further afield and more, more exotic, more out of my comfort zone. And yeah, then, then that thought just really planted itself in my, in my brain and started growing and I couldn't really stop like the feeling of like, I sort of knew that if I took a job with this brand new master's degree in the nonprofit sector, it was going to be like a commitment. It would be like a three or four or five year commitment. And I could see the house in the suburbs and the three happy kids and the dog and the fence like following shortly after, right? but I didn't really necessarily want any of that. I just like, it felt like a foregone conclusion if I kept pursuing this like path where my resume was what was dictating every decision I made. Right. So I did really just get it sort of stuck in my head. Like all those conversations when you're finishing any degree, like every professor, every, you know, older person, all the baby boomers I know were like, what are you going to do with this degree? Like you, you got any jobs lined up? Do you want me to put you in touch with this person or that person? And I just started telling people that I was going to South America. I was like, that's how I'm going to answer this question. So like the last semester I had in grad school, I was just like telling people I'm going to go to South America. And I luckily actually had a one-way flight anywhere that Spirit Airlines flew because they had messed me up like a year earlier on a flight. And so they gave me a voucher, two vouchers actually, and anywhere they flew. So I used that to get myself all the way to Aruba on a one-way flight. And then I caught another little short little puddle hopper sort of plane to get into the, the North Coast, to the Caribbean coast of Colombia. And that's sort of where the, the book starts and where the journey starts and... Yeah, that was like nine years ago. I actually just passed my nine-year anniversary on September fifth. Nice. This, this past September. So yeah, it's been, it's been a it's been a whirlwind since then. And and like yeah, I mean, I still love Wisconsin. I love where I'm from. I'm not like you know trying not to talk too bad about you know where where I grew up and all that stuff because a lot of it like made me who I am, and I'm very grateful to have like had the upbringing I had. Mm-hmm. But um, but in the end, I'm like so happy that I like pushed myself to to get through all the uncomfortable feelings that right. the beginning of travel often has for folks. And like, you know, now I, now I have this sense of like, I could end up anywhere in the world and find a job and mm-hmm. find new friends and, and, you know, make community and, and be happy. And that, that's a pretty cool, like empowering feeling that traveling, I think gives a lot of people like once you push through all that early uncomfort. Right. Could you talk a bit about some of those initial maybe doubts or challenges and those different feelings that you, that you just mentioned? 
you could talk about that a little bit more and what you experienced and of course maybe some of the strategies that you've come up with or or how you've managed to deal with them and and really embrace it over the last nine years. Yeah, that's a great question too, man. Yeah, like I mean, I I keenly remember like the feeling I had when I was first going to South America because like I had no plan. I didn't know anybody there. I, I spoke like five words of Spanish. I didn't know, like, you know, I remember being like nervous about the money. I'd like never been anywhere where there's like totally different money and like a different conversion rate, and, like all these things that, and then on top of that, it's like, you know, my parents were scared and like, you know, growing up in the States, we're all made to feel like Colombia is a scary place for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Colombia is like one of my favorite countries in the world. It turns out and like mm-hmm. a really wonderful place to be and has, you know, crime like every other country has crime. Sure. But it's also just a really great place to go backpacking mm-hmm. and, to, and to check out. But I showed up there alone without any language, without, you know, a real understanding of the culture or whatever. And, and I knew I was made to feel scared. So I, so that was there. And like, honestly, I remember like when I flew into Aruba, I went to the duty free shop and just bought a bottle of whiskey. I'm like a Wisconsin boy. I'm like, this whiskey will help me feel like I'm okay. <laughs> you know, like if I need to just like take a shot of courage, I can. I like, you know, so I, I, I was like holding this bottle of whiskey at the airport and the security guard looked at me. He was like, are you lost? And I was like, oh man, I thought I was keeping that internal. You know, like I thought, <laughs> I thought I was hiding it quite well that I was like, you know, <laughs> as scared and out of place feeling as I was, but it was obviously just like a parent on my face. Even as a security guard mm-hmm. asked me, I was just like lost. And then it turned out where like this lady, I could, I, I was really weirdly stubborn about like paying for cabs at the mm-hmm. time. I didn't want to like give any money to a cab. I was just like prepared to walk with my little backpack on. You know? Right. Right. And then this, this German woman who was teaching there, her name was Anna. She, she offered to like give me a ride into town and then as we got to talking, like putting the bag in the car and on the way to town, she was like, actually, I have a spare bedroom. You seem like a really nice guy. Like, if you want to just crash in my spare bedroom, like, let's do that. Because I admitted I had no idea where I was even staying. I didn't like book anything ahead. Um, so that's like, that was like my first real taste of travel serendipity. And I stayed with her for a week and kind of got my, my bearings a bit. But then, you know, even like when I made it into Colombia, I remember like trying to get water. And I like was like practicing the Spanish in my head and like walked mm-hmm. up to this little tienda and looked at this lady and then just like froze and walked away and was thirsty, you know, for, like, <laughs> the next two hours. I was just like, it's like, man, I got to get this figured out, dude. I got to like feed myself and drink water and like find places to sleep and stuff. So I, t- I totally remember what it felt like in those mm-hmm. early days of like, just trying, you know, like, it's like fake it till you make it almost, right? Like, just like, keep, keep going, like, keep trying to make it. And like, eventually you'll settle into this. Hopefully, you know, it's like my, where my, my optimistic brain kicked in and thankfully I have that all the time with me, but um, not, and then, you know, like years down the road, like when I did get comfortable traveling, I remember just like f- always really loving to find like that person that I, mm-hmm. that I was in my early travels at the hostel who like, you can tell they're kind of uncomfortable that, you know, maybe the mm-hmm. first time away from the States or Canada, or wherever they may be from. And I just like always love finding those people and talking to them and making them feel like, you know, you got this man. It's cool. Like, just figure out what you're going to do for dinner tonight and like maybe make a plan for tomorrow. But like, you don't have to think that far ahead of any of that, you know, like that's just enjoy. Like we're, we're in a cool place in a foreign country together. Let's just have fun. You know? But no, I totally remember the, the, the scared puppy. I, that's kind of how I describe it in the book is mm-hmm. like a scared young pup. And then eventually, yeah, I, I grew into my, myself as a traveler and, and the world felt a lot more open and a lot less scary. Um, but I think it just takes time for anybody really. Like, I don't think, and I think anybody that tries to act like they weren't scared in the beginning is just totally mm-hmm. lying. Like, right. like, no matter right. what, it's like total, it's like you're totally out of your comfort zone. It's totally different than everything you're used to. The language, the money, the everything is different. So like it is, I think it's really intimidating, but then that's like that, that feeling of going from being scared to being comfortable is like exactly where you're growing as a person. That's how you evolve and like, you know, right. Become more yourself, you know, a better version of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. 
So it sounds like, of course, you went uh, without much knowledge of the Spanish language, without necessarily much of a particular <laughs> plan. So how did you really go through the process of figuring out where to go to next? I mean, it sounds like you said a bit of travel serendipity, but, and of course, you're going to meet different people who might, you know, drag you along for the next adventure or, you know, someone, like you said, that lets you stay in their house or things like that. But, um, you know, how did you kind of figure out where it was next? And even as you said, across these different continents, when, when did you know that it was time to jump on a plane? I guess <laughs> if <laughs> I assume at some point that was required. So you had to make a decision there. So just, yeah, how did you think about sort of the big overarching plan or direction of the trip? No, that's a great question. Um, I guess with like the long version, like the when to get the flights, I found I would always just do that like well ahead of time for mm -hmm. one to like save money. I also, it's like one of the pro tips I give in my book, I would like look up what, where the cheapest, you know, international cross-continental flight is from say like, say I was going from like Asia back to the States mm -hmm. at some point and I knew it was going to be like for the holidays which would say, you know, say it's September, I'd be like, okay, so in three and a half months, I need to get a flight from Southeast Asia back to the States. I would just look up like which airports are the cheapest. And it turns out in Asia back to the US, it's definitely Hong Kong, like by a couple hundred dollars. So then I would just like buy a flight out of Hong Kong back to Chicago or something for like three months in the future. And then I kind of loved that way of traveling because then it's like you have this big white canvas in front of you to like fill in the time between that flight and where you are currently. And you know, it's like, whatever, I have this much money and this is my flight back to my home country. And then I'll fill in this like white space between with whatever feels good and what, whatever feels interesting, like volunteer opportunities or just mm. traveling with other friends. But to the first part of your question of like, how do you, yeah, like pick where to go next and like what, what sort of makes the path in front of you. For me, it was like, I didn't really realize this either when I first left on that first trip to South America, but I'm like a born hostel yeah. hopper. Like I just mm. love like the hostel culture and like, I, I remember the first hostel I really fell in love with was, was this place called the dreamer in Santa Marta. And, um, there I made like, you know, my first like little travel crew, we were super, you know, did everything together for like that week, like cooking family dinners together, planning like the coffee plantation tour the next day together, all that stuff. And then like in every hostel too, there's like flyers on the wall for like other hostels that are like, you know, associated to this mm -hmm. one or like other fun hostels. And, and then all the conversations on the road too are just like, where have you been? Where are you going? All the, all, all that stuff. And like the advice offered up there is just like invaluable. Like, and I never cracked like a travel book or a travel guide ever. I just like mm. chatted to people and looked at the flyers on the hostel wall and then like would tag along with whoever's going. And at some point too, like I, I remember like Medellin is just like a kind of crazy mm. party town. And I was like, you know, having just party night after party night. And I felt like I needed to escape this like party mm. town. And this young Irish kid hit Brian like one morning when I was like, dude, I got to get out of here. He was just like a buddy that I'd made in the hostel. He's like, I'm going to come with you, man. So like that decision by this dude who was like, you know, he's like seven or eight years younger than me, like crazy Irish guy that can, you know, like sleep through like a train riding past his head and, you know, like the best version of himself when he's got, got like 20 beers in him. He's just like a really funny Irish dude, but he became like my first best travel mate and him and I sort of made all of our plans after that together. And we sort of picked up people along the way. So like a couple of weeks after that, we had like a seven or eight person travel family that we were making every decision with together. So with that group, I did like the Coca Canyon and Machu Picchu and the salt flats in Bolivia and the Amazon in Bolivia. So like the last couple months of that first trip to South America, I was like with the same travel family. And that was just a really magical, special experience for me and, and made me feel more like man, this is also possible because like you can find your people on the road mm. and form like the fastest, closest, deepest connections, create like a lifetime worth of memories together in a few months. And then like, you know, it's sort of like impermanent and that's part of the magic of it. And then, mm. you know, our, our, that first travel family had people from New Zealand, Australia, Scotland, Ireland with Brian, me and one other American. 
And yeah, it was just like, we, mm-hmm. we just like loved each other's company and like, it felt so fun and comfortable to do, to make all these choices and to like, you know, like go into the fray together, wherever we were headed next to what, you know, whatever overnight bus we were getting on, we were like doing it together. It felt really like it was just a little family. It was awesome. And I know this is getting into maybe some of the technicalities, but I'm really curious how you were able to, frankly, fund this uh, great travel uh, adventure, because I think a lot of people think about that part, too. And for some people, it's some type of remote work. And for others, it's maybe working on the road and finding those opportunities. So it'd be good just to know how you were able to make it happen, because maybe some of the other listeners or viewers out there are curious about how they can do it themselves. For sure. No, I think it's a great question. I think like it's actually one of the notes I had from some of the people that read the first version of my book is to like explain it even a little more. Cause I do think it is something that, yeah, will leave people wondering if you don't kind of say how much you spent, where that money came from, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So for me, I had a little money from a grandma who had like passed away. And like I mentioned in the book, like a couple of times I would like swipe my card that my grandma money was on and just be like, thank you grandma. Like in my head, like, mm-hmm. I, you know, it was only, it was like maybe $5,000 or something. And then, and then I also, this some like before I left, like I mentioned, I left in September. I'd finished grad school in like May, right? So I had June, July, August to just try to save. And I, I ended up like taking every shift to this bar that I could take. And then I also was like pedicabbing on the nights that I wasn't bartending. So basically just like biking a bike around Milwaukee with, you know, my fellow Wisconsinites behind me. And then it was just like for tips, right? But that, that job, I would make a couple hundred dollars every night biking people around as a taxi service. So I just tried to save. And I, I think I departed on that first trip with about like eight or $9,000 in my bank account. And at the time, actually, too, it was like the most I'd ever like managed to sort of like save up and have there ready for my, for my use. But then I found like the first trip was about five months to South America. And I found that I was able to do it all for about $1,000 a month. Like mm-hmm. I, I was definitely staying in like cheap hostels. I never got like a private room. I always was in like the 10 or 8 person dorm room. Mm-hmm. I, you know, took overnight buses to save money. Mm-hmm. I, I just like did it all like. You, and you start to figure that stuff out pretty easily, too, when you're on the road. Like you, you watch and you learn from other backpackers around you. You know, a lot of meals were just like bananas and peanuts, you know, like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind. I didn't mind. Like, I, I was like, this is cool. Cause, cause I also felt like this can go on as long as possible, as long as I have money. Mm-hmm. So every choice I made that helped me save a couple of dollars also felt like productive and rewarding in a way. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I really sort of got very used to being clever with money and saving money. I actually just wrote a blog post about this. Like, like it was something like six ways or six things that six ways I learned how to save money while traveling that will save me money for the rest of my life, something mm-hmm. like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think like, you know, I work out at playgrounds when I find them wherever in the world, I cut my own hair, I never pay for water. Cause I carry a water bottle wherever I go. I, I just try to be like really kind of creative and, and crafty and making sure that my money stretches. And then at some point too, when like, you know, this maybe like two years into the travels, I started like looking for volunteer opportunities or work mm-hmm. opportunities. So I worked at a bar, like when I was doing my dive master on Utila, I started working at a bar when I was there. And then from there, I went to Alaska, try to work at Alaska. Cause you know, that's like the Alaskan dream, like go there and make $10,000 and keep traveling kind of thing. I didn't quite have that success, but uh, <laughs> I did, I did make some money in Alaska. And then, yeah, I just started like, like when you can see the financial light at the end of your tunnel, but you want to keep the adventure going, mm-hmm. it forces you to just like try to figure out what you can do to, to, uh, to keep it going. So like, that's also why I ended up going to Australia because I was able to get a working visa. So mm-hmm. when I was in Australia, it was hard to find a job at first, but then, um, but then eventually, yeah, like when you get, when you get work in Australia, they, all the jobs there pay really well. So then mm-hmm. I was able to come up sort of quickly and that was really nice. And then, yeah, you know, and then the end of my book, uh, I won't give a spoiler, but um, <laughs> it was like, I started to realize like this might be it. Like I, I had like, 
past 31, which is basically the age that you can like get a work visa for like New Zealand, Australia, and a lot of the other countries that have this work reciprocation visa with us. Is that, so was, is I, that the I, working I, holiday visa or? Yeah. Okay. So it gives you like a, it basically gives you like a year to go like work right. whatever job you want, like legally in the country. Right. Mm-hmm. But I had kind of outgrown mm-hmm. the ability to do that. And I was like 32 and then I got forcibly removed from Australia. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, like back and then like I was just in Asia, but. I got on work away when I was there and I started just like trying to find every volunteer gig I could find mm-hmm. just so that like my housing would be covered and some of my food would be covered. And I remember, yeah, like there were stretches then where like I was like helping rebuild concrete houses in Tacloban in the Philippines that had experienced like one of the worst hurricanes in their history. But I could, I remember like I could make like a two week period pass and only spend like a hundred dollars. Cause like my housing, my food was covered. Mm-hmm. I was just spending money here and there on like some extra food or some beers or whatever. So I don't know when you get in that mindset of just like, I, I want to make this adventure go on for as long as possible. You can figure out how to like really save money on the road. And I think in the end, I always say I, I can, I can have a lot of fun mm-hmm. in most of the countries I would want to travel for less than a thousand dollars a month. Mm-hmm. And, and then if you stop and volunteer or you stop and work, you can make it even stretch longer. So yeah, it's, it's not, you know, like I can do like two, two months in South America for what a lot of people I think would go would go spend in two weeks at a resort or any other ways that people choose to travel and vacation. So I think it really is just a shift in, it's a shift in mindset of like how you want to travel. And I definitely prefer like one way flights and, and no no plan (laughs) and just trying to see like how long this amount of money can, can afford me to go. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And as you said, a lot of good financial management tips in there anyway, that (laughs) can help people regardless of their plans or their situation. So it's good to hear that you were able to make every dollar count. Yeah, for sure. And like what I've started to come to realize now is like a lot of those things that you start to do on the road, they stick with you for life. You know, like I still cut my own hair. I still don't pay for water. I still don't pay for a gym. And it's like all the stuff that I started doing while traveling just to stretch every dollar. But yeah, I think it's like the way that I'll kind of probably stay ahead of my finances forever. It's just because of like being creative and, and using a trick that I can figure out. So what would you take with you when you were fully on the road during that time? What was your typical backpack or or situation around that? Because I can imagine there's a desire and I've had this before early in my earlier in my travel days, and I've certainly never traveled as long consistently as you have, but wanting to maybe take more than I needed to, and it ends up weighing you down or you can't buy, keep that one thing that you want. And maybe you don't really buy anything on the road anyway, but there's some souvenirs that might be nice to have even if they cost practically nothing, just as a reminder of your adventure. So how did you manage your space? What, what were the most important things that you took with you? And of course, going across different, you know, uh, geographies, different seasons like that. Yeah. I mean, all my trips were long enough where I just felt like I needed to have like warm clothes and a bunch of tank tops and board shorts as well. But no, I mean, what my like pack had in it and what I chose to travel with definitely like evolved and kept changing. I think on the first trip I, I brought like hiking boots and a tent and I used the tent like three nights in like five months. And I used the hiking boots never. Even like when I went on a hike, I was like, these tennis shoes are more comfortable than the hiking boots. Like why would I even put them on? Right. So, you know, I learned some stuff. I learned some stuff on that first trip of like, you know, I just try to make, when I put my backpack on, like myself look like a backpacker in the mirror. I was like, yeah, I should have a tent and I should have hiking. Boots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like turns out I, I used neither of those things. Right. And then like, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I, I play guitar, not, not like an expert, but I really enjoy it. And like, especially sitting around a campfire at a hostel somewhere, like it's really nice to be able to break it out. So ended up in like the fourth month of my first trip in Bolivia, buying a little hundred dollar travel guitar at a music shop, 
in La Paz. And so that became part of my, you know, I kind of like traded the tent out for that. And mm-hmm. that became like part of something that I felt was worth carrying for me. But I basically had like a little backpack that I would put on chest when I was going to the airports with a big backpack on my back that had all my clothes and everything. And then this little travel guitar that I could sling over my shoulder. And that was sort of my get up for those, the four years of the book covers. Um, and I kind of got it down to, yeah, like what, what I thought was, was valuable and what was like a good use of space inside of my bag. But yeah. It's mostly just like old, old clothes, like clothes yeah. that are falling apart. And I mean, that's another just, I guess, piece of packing and travel advice for, especially anybody from the States or Canada. Like I remember having this weird misconception that like I needed to get everything here before I leave. Cause like, what if I can't find it? Like the world has everything. Every country I've ever right. been to has like a pharmacies and clothing stores and like whatever shoe stores, like whatever it is like that you lose or break or forget to bring, mm-hmm. you can just buy it when you show up wherever you're going. So like, I just think it's a weird, like very, very, uh, you know, American misconception mm-hmm. to think that like, you have to get it here before you leave here. Cause right. once you get over there, they won't have shoes. Or yeah. whatever. <laughs> it's like, of course, of course they have shoes. Of course they have boxers. Of course they have sunscreen or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. And even with electronics, it's only gotten easier. It seems like most of the things you buy these days can take any voltage or obviously you can get the converters and things like that. But it almost seems like the process of the things that I was concerned about. I mean, yeah, like you said, you know, you can probably find some clothes that fit maybe, you know, even from a thrift shop or something like that if you need to. But those electronics were harder back in the day, but now it's just everything's so portable. Everything's, you know, smaller, lighter, and takes ultimately kind of all of the uh, voltages i guess maybe you have to just change the the plug uh, potentially but that's about it yeah yeah and like having like a great international or like a universal uh, adapter or mm-hmm. charger that is like something i would totally say it's good advice to, to pick one out that will work wherever you go just because then it takes out that worry you know yeah. like make sure that your phone will still be able to be charged or whatever else you use will still be able to be charged but yeah a lot of this stuff like and i also you know it's like now i look through my clothes and the things that i've acquired over the last nine years and it's so fun to be like, this shirt's from here and the mm-hmm. shorts are from here and this this hat is from here. And like all my stuff is just like this weird mishmash of things that I picked up throughout my travels. That makes it, that makes it even cooler. And like, you have like an eclectic closet. Yeah. <laughs> so we've heard about a lot of the great adventures, some of the, the fun parts, some of the, you know, craziness. Obviously, didn't get too much yet into the deportation part, but I'm sure that was an adventure as well. <laughs> um, but what I'm curious yeah. about is, if you could tell us a little bit about maybe some of the downsides or some of the things, were there any points in those years of, of constant travel that you thought about, you know, maybe I'm getting a little tired of this or maybe I need a break or perhaps it's time to go back home. And, and I'm not sure how frequently you went back, you know, to visit family and friends in the States and so on, but it would just be good to hear a little bit about maybe some of the negatives as well, just to give a balanced perspective. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, like, I well, basically to answer that part about how when I go home, I, I'm like, I have a I have a really good group of guy friends that I grew up with, working at the same summer camp, going to the same high schools and all that stuff. And we go on a trip between Christmas and New Year's everywhere, mm-hmm. every year up north in Wisconsin. And then also I'm like close to my family, and Christmas is right then too. So like that that those two things combined, like the holidays with my family, this trip with my buddies, has always made it worth it for me to like figure out how to get home every basically Christmas and New Year's throughout this whole stretch. So like no matter where I was, Australia, whatever, I would pay the money and figure out how to get home and just, you know, to look my family and my closest friends in the eye and be like, I'm still me. I'm still, everything's good. Give me a hug. And I, you know, I'm going to keep doing this whirlwind adventure, but like, mm. you know, just to keep that connection at least once a year. So yeah. I, I always kind of just stuck with that. 
Mm-hmm. Last year, actually, with the pandemic, was the first time I didn't make it home for the holidays, and it felt super, super weird. Mm-hmm. Just like miss Christmas. I was like, this is yeah, weird. that's hard. Yeah. Super hard. But um, in terms of just like, yeah, like I didn't experience too much like loneliness or homesickness or anything like that because I am like a pretty extroverted person. Mm-hmm. So that the whole like hostile traveling culture where it's like very open and connected really suits me. And like you know, I took pride in being somebody that like helps accelerate it. Like you know, mm-hmm. make the whole hostel hang out together when when I'm wherever I am in the world kind of mm-hmm. thing. And, like, lead the charge to the bars that night <laughs> i always kind of had that in me and i was always like kind of the older guy too because you know like a lot of people backpacking are in their early mid-20s and i was in my like late 20s early 30s mm-hmm. but but i did also you know have some like tough moments on the road i mean some of it is like you know relationships you form become really intense and, and very heavy and, and real and like you know i think i fell in and out of love like seven times in in, in the in the nine years that i was traveling and some of those weren't mm-hmm. my choice, right? So some of those heart, some of those heartbreaks were, were sad and hard and mm-hmm. made me feel like I should go home. One of them was actually the reason I went back to Australia illegally and started working on tourist visa instead of my working visa mm-hmm. because I had like you know broken up with the girl that I thought I was going to mm-hmm. settle down in the states with. Right. So then I was like, ah, I got I got to get back to you know kayaking with these dolphins in the sunshine. It's like the only thing that'll make me happy. So I was like, <laughs> why why I ended up back in in Byron Bay for like you know the five months that I I shouldn't have been there right right before they caught me. And then I also have this other like really vivid memory of I was in the Perinthian Islands, which are islands on, on the side of Malaysia that are like gorgeous. They're like pretty far out to sea, so they're pretty un, untouched and unmessed with, and it's just like beautiful nature. But they have like other you know problems, like people get like food poisoning and, mm-hmm. and uh, water poisoning and bad bed bugs out there. Mm-hmm. And it's also famous for being the cheapest snorkel tour like in the world, right? So like I, I did a snorkel tour for like ten dollars or something. It was so amazing, like seeing all these cool fish. But I got my back super super sunburned, and also there's like a fun party party life there. So I was like, you know, just drinking drinking rum and like smoking bad tobacco and just like just like partying too hard. Right. And then I slept in I slept in this bed that had like a million billion bed bugs in it. Uh-huh. So there's like a mor- there's a morning I woke up on that island and I was like so sunburned on my back I like couldn't breathe through my nose and I was just super sick. Like my whole head felt mm-hmm. like it was gonna fall off. And I was like covered in infinity bed bug bites. Mm. And all the friends that I'd showed up with to that island had like, were leaving that morning too. And I, I didn't really have a plan. I wasn't sure if I was going to leave or stay or whatever. But I remember after they left, just like laying in this hostile bunk bed, just like feeling so alone in the world. And, like like no, yeah. nobody here knows me. And I'm in like suffering, such a rough shape. And I just need to like fix this and like sort my body out. It was so that that was like a, you know, just one of those hard, like, man, would it be mm. more comfortable or would it be easier to just like be, you know, a high school teacher in Milwaukee, like for sure it would have been, you know, like right. in that, in that moment. Right. But, um, but I don't know, like then you heal up and a couple of weeks later I was somewhere else with new friends again. And like, you know, glad I didn't quit, you know, but there's obviously going to always be hard moments or like, you know, I lost four or five phones. Like every time mm-hmm. you get your phone stolen or broken or lost or whatever, it just feels like, uh, you know, like it, it, it might drive you to want to quit the whole adventure and call, you know, and like just pack up and go home. But I don't know. I always found it like, worth continuing as long as i could as long as i could figure out how to i was like i'm gonna just keep this going because i was also keenly aware that like at some point it would end like mm-hmm. now you know i'm 37 and i and i'm here in, in puerto escondido and i plan to stay here and like now i am not moving like every you know week or every day so back then when i was it just felt like dude this is this is a short time like say it's 10 years of your life like go for it so i know that eventually you got involved with the organization remote year and so it'd be great to hear about how that all came to be, of course, what you were doing there, what they're all about, and how that can maybe help other people to go abroad as well. Yeah, for sure. No, I love Remote Year, and I'm not with the company anymore. They started back up 
recently. They were bought by Selena, if you know, like the big hostel chain, Selena, but they were acquired by Selena. And yeah, now they're starting to run programs again. So give them a Google if you're out there listening to this. But basically, yeah, back in, at the time when I was just traveling, whoever their director of like Facebook ads and marketing was, was very good at like targeted marketing because they knew I was a traveler. And every time I opened Facebook, one of the ads there was for remote year, right? So after like maybe like the eighth or 10th time I saw it, I just decided to send them a cold email. This is also when I was like running out of money, you know, and I try, try to think like, well, how am I going to extend these adventures longer? And really at that point that I was in Southeast Asia and I was past the age where I could do a, mm-hmm. a legal work visa thing, you know, I just had no idea. I was like, man, this might be the end and I might just end up home for the holidays, like on monster.com on my parents' mm-hmm. desktop computer, like looking for a job. So I was like, I, I saw that vision and I was like, I don't want that to be the case. So I just started applying to like every travel company I could think of. I sent remote year a cold email, got an email back and I was like, Hey, I've been like a group leader and I've been traveling for three years. Then eventually, you know, a lot, a lot of these stories are sort of in that last section of the book, but eventually they flew me out to Kofin Yang. The weekend I got there, it also happened to be a full moon party. So like mm-hmm. that first, that first community, like RY1 was 60 or so people, all digital nomads, basically the, the platform of remote year takes you one month at a time around the world. The first, like we started running shorter programs eventually, but the first like 15 programs remote year ran were all actually one year. So you would mm-hmm. live in 12 cities for one month at a time with the same community of like 50, 60 or 70 people, however many people were there. And yeah, when I, when I met that first group, it was a full moon party. So I like went to this full moon party. That was also sort of my job interview. Very strange night, very strange story. If, if, if you want to, if you, if you, if you, if you pick up the book, you can read the whole thing. It's, it was kind of bizarre. And then I was just like waiting on bated breath for like two weeks to find out if I'd gotten the job or not. That story is also in the book. So uh, I'll let you read that yourself if you, if you pick up a copy, but in the end, it all worked out quite well for me and it allowed me to you know continue to travel like i really thought it might be over but then through finding a remote your gig i was able to just keep extending it and, and you know i worked for them for about four years until the start of the pandemic and you know it's a weird thing is like unfortunately like travel stopped being possible because of the pandemic so we had to shut down operations and like our whole team like 120 people pretty much got let go mm. but we also were pretty keenly aware that like the whole world is getting a remote work experience now, right now. So if we can get this back up off the ground in the future, like we might be perfectly positioned to like be a really important thing for a lot of people and be like the, be the tool and the, and the way that people can go about figuring out how to become a digital nomad out in the world, not just one that walks down the street to their closest Starbucks or whatever. Right. And so, yeah, now remote, you're starting to run programs again and, and I will always wish them the most success ever. I, I, I want to pursue my projects here locally in Puerto and some other stuff that I'm working on. So, you know, I thought about maybe seeing my job back. I was, I ended up like as the, as the director of community, which was really just like the coolest job I'll ever have in my life. I was just, they, they, it was basically like, whatever you think will be good for this community trap, like convince us the leadership and then you can go ahead and do it. And so it was just nice. a really magical job and, and like a really cool last three years of work for them. And yeah. So when it, when it ended, I was also pretty pretty aware that like I would probably never find a job that felt mm. that good and that I love that much. So then I was just like, maybe, maybe I don't want another job. Maybe I just right. want to like, try to hustle and be creative and become an entrepreneur and figure this out. And that's yeah. still where I'm at sort of. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, it must've been just incredible. Like you said, to find out that you got this job that not only allowed you to keep traveling, but it was somehow seemingly the perfect role for you. I mean, what, what did it feel like that day when you got that news? Like it's hard for me to even put myself in your shoes, but I can only imagine. Dude, it's really like one of the best like moments of my life. Like finding, finding out it was like, you know, via text message 
And I was in a rare, really rural part of Cambodia in this town that's famous for having like these mini dolphins that swim in the river. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go there to check out these little dolphins. And I also ran into this French girl that I had a crush on. So yeah, also like right after I got the job, she asked me <laughs> if I wanted to kiss. She asked me if I wanted to kiss her. And I was like, yes. I this. <laughs> so like, it just was really like one of the greatest, like, like the end of my little, the end of my little life movie. It just like happened. Perfect. I was like, oh man. And then to also just, yeah, like know that I was going to go home. I, I, I already had this flight home right. from Hong Kong. You know? right. That was actually like a real example that I was using earlier. I'd had this flight home from Hong Kong. And I knew that when I got back for, to the States that I would have like something to tell my parents yeah. and something to tell my dad, like, yo, I got a real job, like a really cool job and like cutting edge trouble, like uh, a yeah. program. Nice. And like, I'm going to be able to go out back in the world, but, like get paid a U.S. salary. Like be paid pretty well for this. And like now my expertise on the road and up with all these travels has like led to something. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, th- and that was the part that just felt so validating. Like, I didn't really know if it was leading to anything. I felt like it must be. And I was like, right. I'm doing all this for some, some greater reason. It's not just like a really long vacation or something, right? Like sure. an extended, extended trip, <laughs> trip. And then I would go, go back to the suburbs of Milwaukee and work at a nonprofit or something. It's like, if that's how this ends, that would just be so weird and not feel right. You know? <laughs> yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah. It just it, yeah, it, it worked out in a really like kind of magical way. It gives the, uh, yeah, that idea that it's all kind of working towards something. And I think we don't really know what that is. It's, I mean, in a way we, we can never know, but you know, there's plenty of opportunities to be surprised. And I think your story is a perfect example. Yeah. And yeah. And I just like, you know, tried to stay positive and optimistic. Something will work out for me. It has to, you know, like this can't just be like, I'm not going to just end up back, back in the Midwest, like looking for a job. I, yeah. I hope this hope this amounts to something so yeah i really did feel pretty pretty amazing and pretty like you know validating really like i was just like yes all of, all of this amounted to like the coolest possible thing. yeah <laughs> so i mean not to jump to the tough part there but i i guess the next thing to ask is just sort of how it was when obviously the pandemic was starting and you realized that things were changing and especially for the company that you were working for how did you deal with that transition and, and how did you end up in Mexico then more permanently? So, yeah, it's a good question. That was hard. Um, so yeah, in 2020, the full, the whole month of January, I was running a month long event in the Dominican Republic on the North coast for remote year. We were running these like, sort of like we call them nation houses where like people, you know, like groups of like 10 to 20 would go somewhere that was like off the regular remote year itinerary, usually with me. And I would plan the experience and the whole like, whatever we had, like the hostel or the, or like the little hotel, I'd, I'd, I'd figure out all those relationships and stuff. So it's still like such a fun gig and fun part of my life. Like that month in the DR was amazing. But then I had, I had a partner in Mexico city. She also was working for remote year. She was the head of operations for Mexico city. And then I made it back there in February. I was planning to spend like a month with her in Mexico city. But I was at the time I was like planning like an Estonian Island takeover. We were going to rent this Island in Estonia and have like a three day party there for our whole community. I was planning another month long meetup in like, central africa i was like working on all this like really interesting stuff that had me feeling like this is so cool i still love Mm -hmm. this job but then yeah we all got let off like uh one week in march like pretty much the whole company like half of us got let off one week and then a week later they just let the other half go and it was like yeah this isn't gonna be possible for time to travel so we just need to like whatever make these decisions that are really hard obviously and yeah for me it was it was it really rocked me to the core because like i it was not only my job it was like my identity Mm -hmm. it was my friends it was my schedule. It was like my travel plans. It was my everything. Mm. It was tied into this like remote universe. So when it all just like got taken away and disappeared overnight, I was, yeah, I was shook. I like didn't know like really who I was in the world or like I had to, re- I had to refine that. You know? mm-hmm. So luckily I had been working on a book and mm-hmm. then I like was able to 
put a lot of my like you know restless energy mm. into the book and you know and i have all the I've, you know like all through my travels i had the thought of like where would i open up a hostel or like a little mm. hotel i mean now it's like where would i open up a co-working co-living because i'm you know i'm in my mid-30s and not my mid-20s anymore mm. so the idea the idea sort of morphed and matured with me but like i still had all those thoughts right so i don't know once once i was able to like first few weeks after and i, I you know i like the being like sad or disgruntled or, or whatever, like feeling bad about it kind of just like dissipated. I was able to just like focus my energy on what's next. Mm. And one of my buddies, Jason, he also got employed at, re- at remote year right around the same time I did. He led the second ever group. I led the third ever group. So we were like in that first batch of like 15 employees and him and I have always been really close. And he also is way more like operations minded and like how things should work. He's like very strategic and I'm more like culture community. Mm. Let's make this fun. How do we like keep everybody? Move. so we kind of have like two sides of the yeah. spectrum covered on on a lot of the stuff when it comes to community building and remote work and all this so we decided when we both got let go to start a consultancy around remote work so yeah. last year we started a yeah we, we called it sprawl consultancy and we've been doing that since since we started it yeah just over a year ago maybe like we're probably coming up in a year and a half actually now. so that's a lot of uh the work that i was able to like throw myself into is just yeah. building out our website and building out the company and like making it a real thing and trying to find our first couple clients which is the hardest part and Right. But now we have like a little client base and uh, yeah, we're throwing a bunch of like virtual holiday parties for companies this year coming up. Cool. Yeah, we, mm. we are, we are pretty good at making virtual things fun because mm. we have a lot of experience with it. having gone through remote year for right. the first four years that it existed. <laughs> and yeah, you know, it, but it did take a while. So that's a really good question too. Cause like it was like every aspect of my life mm. was tied up into remote year when I was fired. So like trying to figure out what, like, how to rebuild my little like house of cards and like what that was going to look like and what it was going to include was like a, like a long kind of difficult like process for those first few months of the pandemic. But, um, in the end, I'm like super happy with it. Jason and I used to also always joke, like, what is the best way this would end? Cause I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to quit this job, but what, what am I going to be like a 55 year old like, community <laughs> director? Like, right. You know, like I just didn't see like the ending. I didn't see how it was going to continue to evolve. So we'd always joke, I'd be like, man, it, to me, it's like, it'd be like riding our horses off into the sunset. And like, it's not our fault. It's not up to us that like it ended or whatever. And that's kind of what happened yeah, like the pandemic. Yeah. So like, you know, we, we both, you know, rode our proverbial horses off into the sunset and then started something new based on the amazing experience we got at remote year. So really it was sort of like the perfect end and it pushed me in a new direction. And now I'm like, you know, trying this entrepreneurial, make it up as you go type of path. And right. I'm very happy. I'm very happy doing it. So yeah, it's been it, it all worked out in the end. It was a really tough first few months, I guess. But yeah, it's all, it's all worked out. So you've been building this remote business, which is great. But also you've decided to stay more permanently in one location. So of course, the pandemic has slowed you down a bit. But at the same time, it sounds like you're, you know, you've bought some land. You're more serious about staying there in Mexico. So what was your reason for doing that? That's a good question. I, I love Mexico. That's part of it. My, my partner's from Mexico as well. And so like being her being my partner makes like whatever dream we have here more possible. Like we're not, you know, I was able mm-hmm. to buy land without having to go through a lot of the hurdles that like other expats or people from the States would have to go through. So it just all felt possible. And also like, you know, I, there's so much I love about consistently traveling and continually moving. And like, you know, I do have that feeling a little bit like I'm like, I'm a shark. Like I need to keep moving otherwise I'll die or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm really trying to just get comfortable with the idea of like, maybe try staying put and try to make the best of that. And like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I play music a few times a week in my little town. I like, you know, started an ultimate frisbee game that happens mm-hmm. once a week. I play volleyball most nights of the week with a bunch of locals here that like, you know, gave me a nickname and all that kind of stuff. So 
it's like I, I've always known that there's like parts of life on the road that are amazing, and that like you can only have if you have a, if you have a life that's constantly in motion and constantly trying to to discover the new. But I'm also missing things that like you can only have if you stay put and you try to build community and you try to be a part of a community. Like I'm also working on trying to get like a plastic recycling system set up in my neighborhood and things like that. It's like, you know, I can never really do that if I was going to leave every week or do, you know, music the way that I'm doing music right now. Or yeah, like all, all these sort of ways to try to like become a, you know, a part of the community and, and help build community. Those are all things that like I knew I was sort of missing by consistently and, and forever moving. So now that I'm staying put, I'm just trying to lean into all like the best parts of, mm. of staying put. And that's really like, kind of like, yeah, where I've come in my mind about it. It's like, I was trying to make the best of moving when I was moving and see as much as I can do and, and do as much as I can do and meet as many people and make as many stories as I can make. And now that I'm put, staying put, I'm like, just trying to think of it in that way, like leaning mm. to like making the best of staying put and try to, you know, do as many things here in the community and, and with the people that are around me here as possible. And then, and that, that feel really good as well. So yeah, right. I'm just trying to make the best of this, of this different version of uh, also life. You know? Yeah, that's perfect. So I know that you've talked about releasing your book and you've shared some stories from it in our conversation today, but I'm sure people out there definitely want to catch more of the stories and pick up a copy. So if you could tell us more about where they could find it, of course, the name and uh, what you cover there, if, if anything has been left out of the story so far, that would be great. No, thanks. I think hopefully if you've been listening this far, you kind of get an idea of what's in the book, but the book is called Not That Anyone Asked, a travel memoir about sex, drugs, love, and finding purpose. So there's a lot of sex, drugs, love. And also finding purpose throughout the book. <laughs> There's 20 some countries covered in the book. And like I mentioned earlier, it's broken up into four continents. So yeah, it's, it's like, you know, I wrote it over four years. It's like definitely the thing that I've created in my 37 years on this planet that I'm most proud of. Um, and yeah, I self published it like a little under a year ago, but it's already got like 125 five-star reviews and it's getting, uh, it's getting like some, some good praise out there in the internet. So it feels good to have it kind of out in the world. But you can find it on Amazon. You can find it. I have a website that's just TravisWKing.com. So you can find it. It's linked in my website um, throughout the whole website, obviously. But also if you just Google, not that anyone asked travel memoir, it should pop right up. And you can get it on either Kindle or paperback. Great. And then I just actually dropped, I dropped the forever prices by a couple of dollars just because in the end, I'm like, I just want as many people to read it as possible. Like yeah. at first I was like, I want to make like four or $5 off each book. Cause like it took me four years to write this book. Right. But now I'm like, I don't know. I don't need to like, because I'm also trying to give a dollar towards some charities and, and some causes that I that I support for every book that I sell, right? But yeah, whatever. In the end, it's like I just want this to be in as many people's hands as possible. And I think you know, I hope I hope it becomes you know part of like the the great travel memoir canon of of you know when you're a hustle hopping backpacker, you're like, have you read? You know, it's a conversation. Like, have you have you read? Not that anyone asked. You got to check this book. So I, yeah. I hope it becomes like that in the future. And the more people that read it, the more likely it is to become that way. So please check it out if you're out there listening to this. I promise, I wrote it with my whole heart and I'm so honest throughout the whole thing. And I know every sentence in that book, like I really reread it like 15 times before <laughs> I published it. And I'm, and I'm super, super proud of it. it turned out, it turned out uh, better than I even was hoping it turned out, I think. And uh, I had high hopes for it. So, <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Well, I'll definitely put links to that and uh, your website and everything else in our show notes. I recommend people Thanks, out there pick up a copy, hopefully a paperback so that they can take it to the nearest hostel and leave it there when they're finished for the next backpacker. But thank you so much exactly. for your exactly. time today. And thanks for sharing your story, Travis. It's been a pleasure and look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on, man. It's been Empire, man. It's a cool, cool podcast you guys started here. So thanks for having me be a guest. If 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and lets us know that we are putting out content that you appreciate. You can quickly find out where and how to rate us at ratethispodcast.com slash expatempire. If you know anyone who would appreciate this podcast, please tell them about it so we can continue growing the global expat empire community. Keep up to date on new Expat Empire podcast episodes by pressing the subscribe button in the podcasting app of your choice. You can also visit expatempire.com and sign up for our newsletter to get our free ebook, Top 10 Tips for Moving Abroad, right now. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Expat Empire, so be sure to follow us there. We are currently offering free consulting calls to discuss your moving plans and how Expat Empire can help you to achieve them. Please visit our website to schedule your call today. Thanks for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode in the coming weeks.